Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Welcome to Seasons. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Plum, we are inching ever so closer to the holidays. Last week, we were telling listeners to make friends with a turkey farmer. This week, we should probably tell listeners to put a baker on the payroll. You know, we are mere mortals, no matter what you think of yourself, Plum. We cannot make everything ourselves. We need help with desserts and breads. Later in the hour, we'll talk to Daniel and Brittany Moreno about why they think it's so important to mill their own flour for the breads they bake at Needs Bakery in Westport. We'll also talk to local baker Kim Huang-Wood about her Vietnamese heritage and her love for all things French. But first, Plum, pie. I love pie a lot, I know. Kate McDermott is the author of Pie Camp, which is not only a comprehensive pie-making cookbook, but it's also an actual thing that home cooks can sign up for. It's held now on Zoom, of course, but hey, isn't everything these days? It sure is. You know what? Let's get a taste of what pie camp might be like and what prepared Kate to write the book. I think it was all the mud pies I made. I was a little girl. <laughs> <laughs> really. <laughs> uh, by the way, I recently found out you can't eat those. I did find that out. Uh, you know, I found that out, too. <laughs> but I made them anyway. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. There are not many human beings in the lower 48 or really across all 50 states who can say they created a pie camp, which I love this. What was the inspiration for a pie camp? Well, I've been teaching uh, day camps, day classes of Art of the Pie classes. And I taught for since 2008 over 4,000 people across North America and even in Europe. And then people said, is there more? We'd like to do more. So I thought about it and I actually didn't think too long. I said, oh, how about pie camp? (laughs) I kind of like just on the fly, had no idea what I was getting myself into (laughs) and, and set up a pie camp. I think the first one was like for five days and it was at my house and people kind of came and we had a blast and I made a lot of pies and made a lot of friends through those pies. You actually do this in your house. So you have a bunch of people come to the house and make pies and do they just kind of sleep on the couch or what do we do for (laughs) camp? So maybe there's sleeping bags. I don't know. Well, the first ones, it's a little different now. Um, The first one, Uh, People did stay at different places, and then they came to my house every day, and we baked. Now, as they got larger, then I rented facilities, and it was a multi-day thing, a multi-day experience that you stayed at a resort, and we ate, and we baked, and we had a great time. We went on a few field trips. That has changed now because of... For obvious reasons, right? For obvious reasons, but it doesn't mean that we still can't make pie and connections and learn. So I pivoted in the spring to doing virtual pie camps. And the first one 
was a three-day pie camp with seven sessions. Wow. And when I put up the information about it, it sold out in three minutes. Wow. Three minutes. Yeah. Those were with people from across North America and as far away as uh, Kuwait. Holy smokes. That's what I said. (laughs) (laughs) All over the world for pie camp. This is insane. So let's play the game. So Monisol and I are going to come to pie camp. We're excited. We can't wait to get there. Like, what's the sheet you get or the email you get saying, welcome to Pie Camp. Here's what you need to bring. Well, actually, that's exactly what it says. Welcome to Pie Camp. And uh, (laughs) here is the schedule of what we will be doing. The silver lining, there's always a silver lining. And the silver lining to pivoting to the virtual world is that my Pie Campers have said, we love to work in our own kitchens with our own tools, I have been able to help them troubleshoot at their specific altitudes with their specific ovens. And this is something that I could not do here. I live in Port Angeles, Washington, like at sea level. Yeah. And my baking is a little different than somebody who's at 8,500 feet. Right. So I've been able to help uh, figure out what works best for you at your altitude in your kitchen using your oven. And then there are 25 other people who are gaining also this information. Right. It's been unbelievable what this has turned into. Kate, I love that because I try to find the silver lining in everything. And I'm glad that that happened because there's a whole litany of things that you go through. So I want to I get to the pie because I already... Actually, no, I thought about making my first pie of the season. And then I remembered that we were going to do this. So I said, Castro, sit tight, Missy. Let's start with tools. What are the tools we need for creating this pie? I think the most important tools are the easiest ones. Say it. You're going to make me so happy right now as a professional chef for 25 years. Say it. You're going to make me so happy. Your hands. Number one. Absolutely. You're born with them. And you never lose them. <laughs> well, <laughs> And I'm doing jazz hands right now, actually. Yeah, you are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So your hands can really, um, they can test the temperature of things. They can feel the texture of things. And they can take the sample and put it into your mouth, you know, so you can test the, the sweetness of the fruit. Um, I think having a bowl that is a comfortable size that you can easily put your hands into and work with your dough, get your filling in there. A spoon, a good spoon that is big enough that you like, uh, whether it's wood or metal, so that you can mix things. A flat surface for rolling your dough. And when I say that, when we're rolling dough, I like to have space so that my elbows or me, I do not feel pinched. I want to feel happy when I'm rolling my dough. So a nice flat surface. And we need a cylinder, a rolling pin. It can be even a wine bottle. I was just going to say, yeah. And a pie pan. But more important than that, and any pie pan actually will work, um, is a reliable oven. You've got to know, is your oven running, as my grandmother used to say, is it running too fast? Is it running too hot? Or is it running slow? Which means, is it running too cool? And these were the words that she used. 
if your oven is off by 25 degrees one way or the other, it's not gonna make a whole heck of a lot of difference. But if you have an oven that's 75 or 100 degrees off in either direction, that can throw your recipe. I used to call people all the time when I was a kid, might have saw and ask them if their oven was running. Then go catch it. <laughs> Must you plum? I mean, Sorry. okay, Sorry. I have a burning question. No pun intended. <laughs> Actually, thank you. Yes. Hey. <laughs> No, I wonder what is the difference or is there a preference to baking a pie in glass versus metal? Does the pie taste differently? Am I doing it wrong? Because I'll be honest with you. Despite the fact that I live in Fairfield County, Connecticut, I don't have as much space as I would like. So all my baking stuff is in one little cabinet and I'm 5'2 on a good day. So I just like reach up and whatever I feel, I pull down. And if it's glass one day, great. If it's metal the other day, great. But I could be altering my pies, correct? I support you in exactly what you are doing. <laughs> okay, go ahead. I, I have to tell you that I have a collection of over a hundred pie pans of all different kinds. Some are glass, some are metal, some are ceramic, some are disposable aluminum. The thing is that you need to know how to cook in each one. Whatever vessel you choose, there are certain small characteristics that you need to know that can help you with your bake. For example, glass transfers heat really quickly and evenly, and it's lovely because you can see the bottom of the pie to see if it's cooked, okay? Um, and, but there are you know, a few little uh, safeguards that you wanna make sure that you're following manufacturer's recommendations of not taking a glass pan completely out of a frozen freezer and putting it into a hot oven. I have had glass pans break on me. And if you're taking it out of the oven, have an already planned spot where it's going to land and a piece of dry cloth, a tea towel or something that you place it on. If you place it on a cold surface, metal or whatever i have also had a pan shatter on me so just just a little little word of caution on there metal i like to have uh pans that are not shiny because shiny will deflect heat i go for a dark pan one that has a matte finish if possible ceramic pans they do take a little bit longer to heat up um, but once they are heated up they hold heat longer and so when that pie comes out of the oven it's still baking and i love their pretty colors they're so wonderful now the last one is disposable aluminum um, and you absolutely can make a successful pie in there but because it's a flimsier substance i have had first-hand experience of watching someone take out a beautiful mile-high apple pie in her aluminum pan and then watching the pan. It collapses on itself, yeah. It just collapsed on both sides. Oh. So my suggestion there is to actually place your aluminum pan, your filled pan, into another uh, solid pan, say the glass pan, and bake it in there so that it actually has a little platform to be, and also it will transfer a little bit more heat on there. That's a great tip right there. So your book, Pie Camp, The Skills You Need to Make Any Pie You Want, you kind of keep it simple. You have three rules for making pie, but those three rules are also your three rules for life. Hmm. They are. Uh, the three rules are um, keep everything chill, especially yourself. Yeah. <laughs> um, keep your boundaries. 
and to vent. Those are the three rules. Yeah. So you said the, the, the rules keep everything chilled, especially yourself. Yes. Uh, keep your boundaries and to vent. What do you mean yes. by to vent? Well, venting in pie making, uh, if we have a full top crust and we have a weak spot in that crust, a pie, a fruit pie that's bubbling and boiling on the inside is always going to find the weakest spot and burst through. Okay. Now we need to vent. So if we have lattice top, it's already got natural venting. If it's a full top, we cut some vents. Now, the beauty of venting is that it can be creative and we can see little slashes on there if that's how you feel, or you can do something that is very artful. Oh, both ways are fine. And I feel that venting is something that in life, it's good to know how to do appropriately. So pie making is just kind of a little way that I can look at that and go, hmm, need a little venting today. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's like going to your therapist. Yeah. Pie camp. Go for the pie learning. And stay for the <laughs> therapy. Stay for the life lessons. You just mentioned two things that if I don't ask now, I'm going to forget. Plum. Two questions, actually. One, how do you do lattice so that you stay on the grid because I inevitably screw up one piece of the lattice and one hasn't gone over another and my children are like, oh, you messed up, mommy. That's ah. one. Is there a trick? Number two, do I really need dried beans or pie weights once I've done the crust, which we need to get into the crust. I know I'm. I, I, this is a premature question, but I know I'm going to forget. So just set the record straight, please. I have the lattice strips and I'm staring at them. And they're staring back at me saying, you are going to mess this up, sweetie. <laughs> well, okay. First of all, you have set yourself up with an affirmation that you will succeed in. Okay. <laughs> so if you say, um, I always screw up my lattice work, then you probably will. But how about changing that to, I like to make a creative lattice. That is what I'm going to do. So it's, you know, okay. Now, when you're doing that, I did a video of making lattice recently and put it up on one of the social media websites. And so I showed exactly, okay, here, you're going to need 10 strips huh? of dough that are about three quarters of an inch to an inch thick. Wide, yep. Uh, not <clears throat> thick, wide. And then, you know, place five of them on top of the pie with a little space in between and count them. One, two, three, four, five. And flip the odd number ones halfway back. One, three, and five. Now take one of your other strips and place it perpendicular to that across. If your strips are going north-south, now you want a strip that's going... East-west. East-west, Okay. And then you take those strips one at a time. If one strip is down, then you put it up. If number two is up, you place it down. If number three is down, you place it up. I see where I went sideways. You start with at least five strips right. on it already. Right. Okay. Oh, I feel really confident now. Yeah, you learned something. This I is did, great. No, I, I'm, I just had an epiphany. It's amazing. Well, let uh, me say you. one more thing for you. You can also just lay them on haphazardly in a very artistic style. Yes, it's just a, say, this, is, I have, this is my art. This is my, my artistic license with this, with this lattice. Wow. I'm so, thank you, Kate. No, I'm serious. This is, you know, the type A in me. This is the kind of thing that keeps me up at night. 
And what about yeah. um, pie weights? Pie weights. Um, so uh, this is the thing where if we are doing something called blind baking, which does not mean that you're putting a blindfold on your eyes. This means that you are baking the crust of a pie, pre-baking it and setting aside to cool before you put a filling in it. So because there's no filling in your crust, in your dough, in the pie pan, when it goes into the oven, if there's nothing in there to hold the sides up and the bottom down, the sides are gonna slump down and the bottom is gonna blister up. So we put pie weights in. And pie weights can be the ones that you buy at the store, which are ceramic or metal. Or like me, I have a, a container of rice, beans, lentils, and you know, gosh knows what else is in there that I've used for years. I just reuse and reuse. The one thing you must know about pie weights, which I found early on when I was learning how to do this, I put my pie weights directly on the pie dough. Yeah. I didn't put any layer of anything in between them and the dough. So I was picking out beans from my cooked dough. Oh, boy. So what do you need? Like parchment or something? Parchment paper or foil. Anything. Yes. Even a, you know, what's really cool is those big flat commercial uh, coffee filters. Oh, that's a good idea. How about that? That's not bad. Well, we're talking about pie crust, which obviously is the bane of existence for a lot of amateur pie makers out there and even me as a professional chef for 25 years uh sometimes i feel intimidated making a pie crust okay i didn't actually admit that might as well i was kidding it's just between us girls thank you thank you you're welcome but there's so many different ways and so many different things you could tell people when it comes to making pie crust using leaf lard as opposed to regular lard using butter adding vodka to your pie crust to help the gluten not so it's not as tough and huh. or some people even think putting gin in there because the juniper can add a hint of flavor to it there's so many different ways have we overthought the pie crust kate like are we trying to do way too much stuff with it now i think quite honestly that there are many good recipes and techniques out there and you find the one that works for you, then it becomes your crust. Mm. So you just you know find the one. I love the recipes for doughs that I have in uh, both of my pie books, but I continue to learn. So the recipes that I have in Art of the Pie, which are really good ones, I feel I didn't stop there. I continue to learn. So there are new recipes and new techniques that I have learned that I have shared in Pie Camp. And I've been finding that I think pie is such a huge subject that you can't know everything about it in one lifetime. Yeah, there's a lot there for sure. I know when I make it, I do like to put vodka in my pie crust. Really? Oh, absolutely. So it keeps it nice and easy to move when you're using it. But when it bakes off, the alcohol burns off. So actually, you know, most of that moisture has evaporated so much faster and gone. So the pie crust is a lot flakier. It also helps with the formation of gluten. So it's pretty cool. I have a tip for you. Ooh, let's do it. Okay. So I have one of the new recipes in pie camp is called the one cup out dough. Okay. So on this one, you're going to put all your dry ingredients into a bowl you know, two and a half cups of flour, flour, salt, or you know, 363 grams, pull one cup out and set it aside. Now take your fat and smush it all over that remaining flour and coat it really, really, really well. Like it has a raincoat on there. Okay. okay? Now the water can't get to it to make the gluten. Uh, 
Now what you're going to do, you've got it all smushy on there. It's got the raincoat on. Put that remaining one cup of flour back in and fluff it around. And now add your water in increments and fold it over like with a spatula or with your hands. And you're making uh, layer upon layer upon layer. You know, you'll put in three tablespoons of water and then fold and fold. Three more, two or three more tablespoons, fold and fold. You can add up to eight or, eight or ten tablespoons of water. It's great, and I don't have to do the, the vodka or anything. I'm going to do that, and I'm going to send you a picture on Instagram when I do it. <laughs> I'd love to see. What's the biggest difference between doing a fruit pie, a fruit-filled pie, versus, say, like a pecan pie mm-hmm. or a cream pie or like a chocolatey pie? What, what are the big differences? The first one is a matter of taste of which one you like the most. Uh, fruit pies are seasonal. That doesn't mean that you can't make a fruit pie of some sort all year long because sure. now in our world, things are brought in from all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can make a peach pie. Even though peaches aren't in season, Any right, season. where you live, right. Right, right. I do try to cook uh, to bake seasonally, and I use frozen fruit very regularly as if it were, fro- uh, as if it were fresh, not defrosting it, but using actually as it is fresh. So... Fruit pies, it's a basic, easy formula of four things that go into that filling. Fruit, and we want to say of pie-worthy quality, which means that it has to have flavor. Mm -hmm. Then we put in some sweetener, and that's the actual amount is actually based on how sweet your fruit is. And then we put in our seasoning, which is all over the map. You know, if you like cinnamon or cardamom or, you know, whatever it is you want, put in an orange liqueur or an almond liqueur, whatever floats your boat, you know, and then you put in your thickener. Now, once you have all of those four things in your bowl and you mix it up, then you take the final taste test. Then you decide, oh, maybe I need a little more lemon in there or maybe I want a little more sugar. And I always try to be a little conservative on my initial ingredient additions because it's easy to add yeah. but like harsh words it's kind of hard to take them back that's the truth actually you know i even think when you're doing something sweet like that don't be afraid or scared to put a pinch of salt in it it makes a big difference it does it does now on the cream pies and things like that the the difference there is many times in the cream pie you're making a filling on the stove already so like a chiffon pie or cream pie you're at the stove doing things it's just another step but things like pecan pies and pumpkin pies those are the addition of eggs and things in there so you're using your nice bowl that you love and uh, with your spoon or your whisk and then you pour it carefully into your pie shell and uh, if you're doing a pie like that like a pumpkin pie sometimes what I will do is actually put my pie pan with my crust in there, my dough unbaked, and I'll put it on the rack in the oven and then pour my filling into it so I don't spill it all over the floor when I carry it over to the oven. That's a good tip. You know, one of my favorite type of pies to make, Marisol and Kate, is I grew up down south. And so, you know, when we'd make pies, it's kind of seasonal and you know, doing a buttermilk pie, which is basically an egg-based, you know, it's it's basically like, a, I don't know how you even describe it. It's almost like a, the filling of a Boston Ooh. cream donut. Like, it's it's amazing. Yeah. It's such a great pie, but it gets brown and crispy on top as it bakes in the oven. 
I guess I would call it an egg-based pie, Kate. What do you think? I kind of call these kitchen cupboard pies. They're the ones that um, our grandmothers, our great-grandmothers would have said, what do I have on hand? I've got eggs. I've got sugar. I've got butter. I've got a little flour. I've got milk or buttermilk. I'm going to make a pie. Exactly. And and this is what we do. I I love that. How do you know when your pie is done? Because something you address in your book is that you want to use all your senses when you're trying to figure out. I live and die by the timer. But right. sometimes the timer says, sorry, Missy, it's not going down like that. <laughs> well, we look at it. Okay. For, well, actually, the first one is, is your sense of smell. If it's a fruit pie and I'm coming into the house and I've been outside, you know, like feeding my chickens or something, and I walk into the house and it smells like, oh, I can smell it. It smells like a bakery. I know I'm usually about 80% done. And then I'll go over and I will turn the light on in my oven because I don't want to open the door if possible and let the heat out. So I'll turn on the light and take a look in there. Does it look right? Do I see a golden color? Does it look like a pie is done? If not, I let it go a little longer. If it's too dark, I may uh, put a a piece of vented foil over the top with the shiny side down. Or I may say, you know, do I see bubbling coming out of the vents? Do I see steaming? Is it a piping hot pie? Do I see this? And then the oddest one, which I started doing decades ago, was actually pulling the pie out and listening to it. Now, this would be for a fruit pie. Listen to the pie. I know, I know, but I get my ear right down there, and I, I call it a sizzle wump. And I want to hear the sizzling of the fat in the crust, sizzle, sizzle, sizzle. And then I want to hear the whomping of the filling which is boiling you got to have it boil in there especially if you've got thickeners that need to reach a certain temperature so they can do their work and thicken the pie i want to hear that bubbling hitting the bottom of the upper crust the underside of the upper crust and you'll hear this each fruit seems to have a different sound deep dish apple pie okay it may sound like If it's a cherry pie, you know it might be boop, 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 boop. And you want to see the bubbling in there. Not like, oh, here's a bubble. Oh, and there's a bubble. But like it's a happy day and there's a... A cacophony of mm-hmm. of fruit yeah. bubbling. I just need to know, have you called the United States Patent Office? Will you patent sizzle womp? Because <laughs> you should. Not yet. Get on it. Sizzle because I knew exactly what you meant. Yeah. Sizzlewomp should be the name of what people, when they graduate pie camp, they are called Sizzlewomps. They can have the certificate of happiness in Sizzlewomp. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, rest, rest assured, when I'm making pies, I'm going to be listening to it. That's for sure. In the book, too, you talk about something pretty cool. Your 20-20-20 uh, method. Can you talk about that for a second? Oh, absolutely. This is something that at pie camps over the years of, you know, decades of teaching, I wanted to find a way so that our pies would not burn on top or get too dark. So here's what I came up with. You do something in a fruit pie bake, it's usually about an hour long, and we're going to do something every 20 minutes. And it's not like a lot of stuff. There's very small little things we have to do. So at the first 20 minutes, you're putting your pie in in a preheated oven of 425. That's your first 20. Okay. Your second 20, 
the timer goes off and you're going to go and you're going to turn your heat down to 375. Okay, that's your second thing. Now, your third one is where you're going to do the, the work here. You're going to pull the pie out and put it on an already planned place so you know where it's going to go and close the oven door so we keep the heat in. And that, at that point, is when you're going to brush the egg wash or your milk wash on top of the pie and sprinkle it with your sugar. Oh. Because, and then you put it back into the oven and let it bake for another 20 minutes or until it's done. Doing it this way of putting the wash and the sugar on in that last 20 minutes has taken away that, oh my gosh, my pie's been in there for 55 minutes, 60 minutes, and I have the dreaded sugar burn on top of the pie. I think I put the egg wash on too yeah, early. I have to say... I'm emerging from this a lot smarter about pie making. So thank you. Well, you're so welcome. It's not hard. And as I say to people, just be happy, stay home and make pie. And I do really, really hope that at some point we can all, that like a good lattice crust, that our paths will cross. That was Kate McDermott. She's the author of Pie Camp, the skills you need to make any pie you want. Want to go to Pie Camp too? Visit Kate's website, artofthepie.com, for information. And visit our website to get two recipes from Kate's book, her master recipe for fruit pie and an eggnog chiffon pie. Go to ctpublic.org seasoned. Later in the show, we talk to the husband and wife team behind Needs in Westport, where they mill their own flour on site. They really do. I've seen them do it. You can too. Very cool. And on the other side of the break, our conversation with local pastry chef Kim Wong-Wood. She puts her heart and soul into every beautiful French-inspired cake that she makes. I want to show my love to people through my dessert. You know, Vietnamese culture, we always overfeed everybody. That's how we show our love. I'm Chef Plum. And I'm Marisol Castro. We'll be right back. everyone this is seasoned i'm marisol castro and i'm chef plum hey do you need a holiday stress reliever already mm -hmm. yeah i know me too we recommend scrolling through the instagram page of leban patisserie because like puppies and babies pretty cakes are very calming to look at <laughs> and pretty is actually an understatement when it comes to talking about the cakes simsbury pastry chef kim huang wood bakes kim is a one-woman show baking, decorating, and hand-delivering culinary works of art to customers across Connecticut. She is definitely a baker you want to know about. Hi, I'm uh, Kim Huang Wood, and I am the owner and the baker of La Bonne Patisserie. It is a Vietnamese word for cake, and I'm very proud of that name just because of my heritage and uh, what I do. I have always have been uh, fascinated with French desserts and cuisine. I don't know if you know, but the little, a little bit of history of Vietnam. Um, Vietnam was colonized by the French. And so a lot of our cuisine, Vietnamese cuisines are French based. Even our pho is 
popular and it's kind of derived from French cuisine because of the mirepoix that we put into our broth. So I am, my family and I immigrated over here when I was three. So growing up here in America, having English as my second you know, language, um, my parents always instilled Vietnamese language, cuisines, and everything in us and my siblings. And so I just grew up eating Vietnamese food. And growing up, you know, I love uh, French. The language is beautiful <laughs> and the desserts are amazing. So I want to go toward the French side and uh, include my heritage with it. And where did all the French pastry training come in? I was blessed and honored to be able to work for uh, Chef Frederick Lair um, with ExxonMobil at, at their headquarters in Houston. After culinary school, I worked under Chef Frederick and I learned so much from him. And uh, he's French trained. He used to work for Billiard in New York and he, had, and he was the executive chef and uh, pastry chef uh, in Vegas. And so I learned so much from him and I'm, he's still my mentor today. And, you know, and he's very French. Like, I don't know, Chef Flamdeck, you know, like French chefs are very like on your butt and. <laughs> You've had some things thrown at you. I'm exactly. Oh, oh, sure I did. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I, I definitely did. And if anybody have a chance to be able to work with a French chef, it's hard. It's very hard. Like you have to work your butts off, but at the end, you learn so much from them. And that's where, you know, even though a knife is thrown at you or, a, you know, a spatula, but at the end of the day, you learn not to do what you're not supposed to do, you know. And your agility goes through the roof. It's amazing. <laughs> yes. You become a ninja. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Kim, I'm looking, at, I'm looking at your website and I'm listening to you talk about your culinary teachings. I suspect that what I'm looking at, which really looks like it could be in a museum, is not something that you just learn from a world-renowned chef. I mean, sure, you learn nuances, but this looks like it comes from your heart and soul. Why this? Why these artful confections? It is definitely from my heart. Every dessert I make, I you know thought long and hard about the design, the flavor, the texture. Again, that's instilled to me by my chef, Fred. And uh, it all the flavor has to balance with each other because in one bite you have to have like all the it's kind of like an umami in your mouth but like this is in like the sweet side and like yeah i definitely put my heart and soul in it and it's just i want to show my love to people through my dessert you know vietnamese culture we we love to show we always overfeed everybody that's how we show our love and and, and i know italians the same thing so i kind of included my vietnamese heritage again back into it uh, into my desserts because that show who I am. Yeah, they're stunning to look at. I'm scrolling down this page and I'm looking at this apple caramel bun, a bonkin, like what you did there, <laughs> bonkin you. spice latte bun, which is also beautiful. How do you come up with these ideas? I mean, this looks like a dried flower, like a bona fide flower on a cake. Yes, uh, it definitely is. It's a, it's a straw flower. Uh, my inspiration comes from Connecticut. I mean, I, you know, when I, my family and I moved over here, we moved to um, immigrated here to Texas. So Texas has nature and all that stuff, but it's not the same as Connecticut. Connecticut, we have more farms, trees and all that stuff. So I tend to drive toward, you know, nature and I love the fragility of the flowers and nature and all that stuff. So I like, I love to incorporate all of that natural flavor and natural design into my uh, desserts. And so 
you know, it's funny that you asked about the uh, straw flower on my cake is I so happened to stumble upon a flower farm here in Canton, Connecticut, and it's Lindell Flower Farm. First thing I saw was the flower, uh, the straw flower. And I was like, I got to have that. I got to incorporate that in. So she um, dried the straw flower for me and it turned out gorgeous. So I was like, that's it. That's fall. That's, that's my fall desserts. Now you might look at Kim's cakes and think, I could never do this myself. But one way she stayed connected to the community is by teaching cake decorating classes via what else, Plum? Zoom. Kim delivers cake kits to customers and then they get on Zoom for a lesson. I'm a young mom. My son is just about to turn two this month. Uh, I started Laban in January. COVID hit and, you know, we are in quarantine and Laban kind of slowed down and uh, I have no friends. And I was just like, you know, other mom, young moms would like to have some kind of outlet to have fun and meet other moms. And um, with that coming to mind, I came up with this idea of having a cake decorating event. And I chose some designs to be easy, you know, it looks hard, but it's easy. And, you know, pretty much anybody can do it. So in my kit, I pretty much bake everything, colored all the buttercream. I, you know, everything comes in a box. And all they have to do is just log in and join me in my class and meet other moms. It turns out great because all the other moms were so supportive of each other. And we have such a great blast. And who would have thought I would be able to find a friend through this COVID, through Zoom? It was wonderful, you know. Kim, I wanted to ask you too, before we get you out of here, it's the holiday season. People are, you know, going to be baking grandma's pie at home or or, or her her peach pie or her, her pecan pie. You as a professional baker who makes amazing things, what would be a couple of tips you would give to somebody aside from just call you to get the pie to begin with? to bake pies at home? What would be some great home baker tips you could give? Start early. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, you know, it's just more of like, get great ingredients. Uh, Laban, I'm actually about to launch a Thanksgiving menu, which we have two tarts. And uh, if anybody needs help, I have a, on my website, there's a uh, contact me. If anybody needs tip, definitely, you know, start early. If you want to do pie, um, always have your butter cold, your butter and your water cold, because then that will make it a really fluffy crust. That was pastry chef Kim Huang Wood of Laban Patisserie. Kim runs her patisserie out of a small commercial kitchen in Canton and delivers her cakes and pastries to the surrounding towns herself. She hosts cake decorating classes too. Her website for more information is laban.com. That's L-E-B-A-N-H.com. And visit ctpublic.org slash seasoned to see a slideshow of Kim's beautiful cakes. I'm Chef Plum. After the break, the husband and wife team behind Needs Bakery in Westport to share what it's like to open a bakery in the middle of a pandemic and explain why milling their own flour is so worth the effort. All we're doing is making things the way it used to be done. Keeping the bran and the germ intact in your bread, which is what whole wheat is, it's just better for you at the end of the day. I'm Marisol Castro. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasons. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. For most of us, pastries and pies, those are occasional treats. Speak for yourself. 
<laughs> but bread? Bread is one of life's most simple pleasures, enjoyed most days, if not several times a day. Morning toast, sandwiches, dinner rolls. Midnight snacks. I mean, who doesn't love bread? Here in Connecticut, just about every town has a neighborhood bakery they can be proud of. One of the newest, if not the newest, in my hometown is Needs. That's K-N-E-A-D-S. You see what they did there, Plum? See it. Right? The kneading of the dough? Well, what makes Needs stand out among many excellent bakeries in the state? They mill their own flour. Owners Brittany and Daniel Moreno talked to us about what inspired them to learn the art of milling organic whole grains into flour and why it really makes a difference in their breads. Brittany and Daniel joined us from their home on their day off. You'll hear their baby daughter in the background. Here's Brittany speaking about their inspiration, and then we'll get into the milling process a bit. So I think a bar- big part of that came from working at Blue Hill Stone Barns. Um, that's where we really got involved in working with a lot of farms directly. You know, they have the, the farm on site and then just like a lot of connections with local farms. That was a big part of why we wanted to mill our own grains. The freshness of that, it's the same idea as grinding your own coffee. You know, you're bringing the freshest ingredient to everyone and you're getting the ingredient at the peak of its quality. Grains are the the exact same. And I think that that's one of the last things to kind of come into the market in terms of that. You know, all farmers markets have produce at the top of the, the peak of its freshness. Flour kind of was pushed off to the side for the longest time. And now people are kind of understanding it's a plant. It's, it's a product that should be used fresh. And you kind of take away all the nutrients once you're making it shelf-stable. You know, I, I do appreciate that we live in a world now where people actually care about that and will ask that and will say, hey, you know, where does this come from? Where, where do you get your flowers from? And that being so important to you guys is definitely refreshing. I love hearing that story mm-hmm. just to hear about that. And trust me, being at Blue Hill at Stone Barns, once you're there, you don't have any choice but to care about where your food comes from. It's an amazing spot and what a great place to learn from. I saw the chef's table. I feel like I was there. I'm just trying to, you know, save up enough money to go get an actual, you know. Brittany and Daniel, is it true that it takes 36 hours to bake a needs loaf of bread? So the whole process altogether, yeah. Well, I mean, we have that added layer of milling the flour, but that's not really included in there. But we need to get the starters going and then get the dough mixed. Um, And then you have that cold fermentation, which which is really important for, you know, kind of breaking down the gluten. There's kind of two parts to the gluten structure. You want to first build it by mixing the dough, and then you need to break it down to make it more digestible. So that process of the slow fermentation is much different than when you have a commercial yeast leavened loaf of bread where you're speeding up the fermentation and it's not making the flour digestible. The baby agrees with you 10,000% apparently. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> She's very passionate. Hey, I want to ask you guys, my friends at Wave Hill Breads in Norwalk, they mill their own grains, and they found that people who have gluten allergies tend to not have a reaction to their product. Do you guys have that as well? So there is like, a lot of conversation because people have been eating breads for you know thousands of years, and if you just take it back to how it used to be done, I mean, people used to raise their own wheat, take it to a local miller, the miller would mill it. Then you used to take it to the local bakery and the baker used to make the loaf of bread. So if you look back at it, I mean, all we're doing is making things the way it used to be done. I think all the modern gluten sensitivities stem from people whipping up a loaf of bread in a matter of hours by adding chemical leaveners to it, 
fabricated yeast, things like this. But like you have such a natural process when you start talking about sourdoughs, natural fermentations, keeping the bran and the germ intact in your bread, which is what whole wheat is. It's just better for you at the end of the day. So I think that's what, I mean, they're better at digesting something like that than it's like a sped up process. Can you tell us a little bit about the milling process that you guys go through with your grains? Yeah, so we have a new American stone mill built by Andrew Hen in uh, Elmore, Vermont. They are actually bakers. So this is a really, really nice mill. It has Vermont granite in it. I have the 40 inch uh, size mill and it's uh, able to mill about 100 pounds an hour. Wow. And we're able to make all the adjustments to get it to, you know, whatever standard we want. We're able to mill really fine flour. Our main Levon loaf is uh, 100% whole grain. So that means like we're not sifting anything out. And it doesn't come across quite as weedy because of the quality of the flour. I mean, I think there's an, a thing that a lot of people don't understand about milling as well is that in general, when you start thinking about what whole wheat flour is, to start from the beginning, wheat is composed of three parts. You have the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. The endosperm is pretty much what makes up white flour. The bran and the germ is what was removed. That's what contains a lot of oils and things like that. So whenever you buy store-bought whole wheat flour, the bran and germ is removed, bleached and processed to remove the oils, added back to the endosperm to create a shelf-stable product. That suddenly just <laughs> made me sad. <laughs> I mean, it's the, it's the oils that go essentially go rancid in freshly milled whole wheat flour. So it's like, we do have a shelf life on our flour, but I mean, we're milling daily, so it's not an issue for us. We don't mill thousands of pounds and sit on it. There's so much you can control in the milling, depending on how tough the wheat is, how tough the grain is, you're able to move the stones closer and farther apart. It's like an added layer. And there's like a, a good reason why I feel like a lot of bakers don't bother milling their own flours and they leave milling to professionals or people who do it. It's definitely a lot more work. I guess historically, what a lot of mills are designed to do is essentially crack the grain, which makes it easier to sift the flour. Because when you crack the grain, it leaves the germ in the bran whole or intact. So when you sift, it's easier to create white flour. So when you buy whole wheat flour at the store, usually the bran and the germ is way too coarse, meaning that when you bake a loaf of bread, all the bran and the germ is doing is acting like shards of glass in your flour to disrupt the gluten from forming because the gluten is not able to form through the bran and the germ. Does that make sense? So everyone associates a loaf of whole wheat bread to be like this dense, not good piece of bread because to start off, the bran and the germ is way too coarse. So the gluten does not develop properly. But when you mill your own flour, we mill it fine enough to incorporate the bran and the germ to be able to make a whole wheat loaf properly, which you're not going to be able to do with store-bought whole wheat flour. Seems like a good time to remind you that you're listening to Seasoned and not Science Friday. But it's impossible to talk about gray bread without talking about the science of how it's made. And I can attest to the benefits of this fine milled flour. I was recently there eating a mushroom omelet. In case you don't know, Needs is a cafe in addition to being a bakery and a mill. So the omelet came out with this beautiful slice of bread that was just right. It was like toasted to perfection. I destroyed that thing. That toast didn't stand a chance with my belly. The good part about it, it didn't make me feel full. If that's what Daniel means by a proper loaf, I definitely had a slice from a proper loaf. You get to eat all the food. I don't, it's just not mm -hmm. fair. 
True story. Okay, so you're not going to end up with a bread bomb in your belly. But what about the flavor? How does the fine milled flour affect the flavor? It really does help to bring back the coffee comparison. I mean, it's, it's just like coffee. It's just like if you just buy a generic coffee, it's probably a blend of a bunch of different origins. But for us, it's like it's not bread wheat. It's, it's lang wheat is the variety that we use. It's heritage red fife. It's specific wheat varieties that we choose to use to blend to our liking to achieve certain protein contents to get the flavor that we want in a loaf of bread. That was Daniel and Brittany Moreno and uh, the occasional coup from their baby daughter. Daniel and Brittany are the chefs and owners of Needs Bakery Cafe and Mill in Westport. They are brand new, everyone, as in they open their shop during a pandemic. So if you're in Westport, think about supporting the important and delicious work that they do. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyen-Aiken and Katie Talarski. Oh yeah, and next week isn't the last Thursday of the month, but it is the last Thursday before Thanksgiving. So we're hosting a special listener call-in show with an instructor from the Culinary Institute of America, my alma mater. Our guest teaches a class devoted to American cuisine. There is no question about Thanksgiving dinner that we can't answer. We've got your back this holiday, so tune in and call in next Thursday at 3 o'clock. See you then, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to Seasoned.